Welcome to Transformative Talk. Each episode is hosted by a different graduate student in Dr. Haddad's courses at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Join us today as we explore how educators can use critical social theories to transform themselves and their classrooms. Educators can get real and share real life experiences, near misses, and big little wins. Okay, all right, ready? Welcome, this is Amy and Austin, your hosts for this episode of Transformative Talk. Yeah, so we're going to go ahead and introduce ourselves real quick. Um, I'm Amy. Hi, everybody. I'm a first generation college graduate and I've been teaching for 20 years. I recently began a master's program so that I could teach higher level math courses and be prepared for whatever other opportunities may arise. And my name is Austin. Um, I've been in education for, I think, seven, eight years. Um, and I got started with Teach for America in Arkansas. And similar to Amy, I'm doing this master's program so that um, I can look good on paper. And then who knows what other types of jobs are out there outside of teaching. Um, in this episode, we're going to talk about the three viewpoints of education and how these viewpoints can be applied to our classroom. And you're also probably wondering why two math teachers are taking this social studies class. So we're going to talk about that and how we plan on incorporating what we've learned so far into our classrooms this upcoming fall. Yeah, so I want to pose a couple of questions. How are we planning for social change in education? What are we maintaining or reconstructing in our democratic society through the planning and implementation of our lessons? Hopefully you'll be able to answer these questions for yourself as we make our way through this week's podcast. First, we'll talk about the three viewpoints of education we learned about in our reading, conservative, liberal, and pragmatist. The conservative viewpoint was discussed by Walter Lippmann. His viewpoint was that only a few people had the capability of making decisions that involve changing society, so voting, lawmaking, things like that. And he also believed that school, like the purpose of education, was for maintaining social order. And a lot of people in our class were surprised and definitely put off by his viewpoint. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, most certainly. When you read phrases like enlightened elite, most voters behaved irrationally lacked adequate knowledge and competence yes we're definitely going to be put off because we don't see ourselves that way and we don't we don't think that um that voting and lawmaking and and public policy is just for the enlightened elite um, but we'd have to understand the context of the 20s and 30s to understand where walter Lippmann was coming from industrialization and urbanization were booming and people were now more steadily becoming informed by mass media rather than having firsthand knowledge. Even Dewey was impressed with Lippmann's analysis of social and political conditions of the 20s, but he didn't agree with his recommendations and, and uh, some teachers don't either. I think that's where most of the educators in our class are, are too. We don't let um, undesirable conditions keep us from finding a way to make things better. Unlike Lippmann, we believe we can do our part as educators to help students become more informed and provide practice for identifying and dealing with challenges. We want our students to confidently enter the arena of public policy if they desire to. And not only that, it's our duty to be informed citizens. Definitely, I agree with that. And I 
hearing you say that makes you think like it was probably a really scary time back then just having so much like new have so many new ways to uh like get information and news it was he probably wanted a way to like maintain order i guess yeah remember think remember the expression roaring 20s oh yeah oh my gosh there we go <laughs> i didn't think yeah. about that until now. Hey, how about that it's roaring 20s now too what do you think oh no i definitely agree because like we have so many different like apps and like you can get your news in the newspaper twitter facebook oh. and like there's some of them are factual and some of them are not factual and so it's just kind of hard to like kind of i don't know like sift through everything and and see what counts and what doesn't yeah and we have so many changes coming our way as well i mean staying home from school, educating over the internet, not meeting in a classroom with our students. There are just so many big changes that have taken place at the beginning of the 20s, this century as well. Oh, geez. <laughs> um, the next viewpoint um, was discussed by George Count. He had a liberal viewpoint. So he believed that school was an agent for social change and could be used to remedy economic disparity. Um, and so this was, kind of like birthed from the recovery around the Great Depression and how like we as a country needed a new social order um, in order to successfully recover from like a great big economic disaster like that one. And some people in our class had some really um, like really awesome things to say about this. Here's a quote from Kathleen Boyd's um, like what she thought from the reading. It says, I write about George Count and his new social order ideas for teachers and even students. I can't say I didn't disagree with some of his viewpoints. However, I do believe that Dewey makes a good point, and we're going to talk about Dewey a little bit later. Um, believes that Dewey should not be shaped, like children shouldn't be shaped by others for any political reasons. They should grow up and decide how they use their knowledge that they've gained. Yeah, and um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and share um, a quote from Sarah Mercado, another student in our class. She says, Count's curriculum for social transformation is to promote democracy that allows all to participate. He wanted to minimize the gaps in income, wealth, and power. Nice. What we'll call the pragmatist viewpoint, so it's kind of like uh, maybe a happy medium, was discussed by John Dewey. So he believed that it was the school's responsibility to expose the student to as much knowledge as possible so that a student could decide for themselves how they want to participate in society. Yeah, so one of the quotes in our reading was, Dewey, like Counts, understood that education must have a social orientation. The question Dewey wrote is not whether the schools shall or shall not influence the course of future social life, but in what direction they should do so and how. And so one of our classmates, Stephanie Padilla, reacted to that and she says, there is a way to teach where you're not persuading the audience to think a certain way, you actually make them think by using their own frame of reference to make a decision, which is what I believe Dewey was trying to convey. Um, so Dewey believed that schools should share in the transformation, but in a way that teaches the student to think critically for themselves. This allows the student to discover the social injustices instead of being told what they are. This is what Stella Benavides says from our class. What viewpoint do you think best matches your philosophy of education? So I think my philosophy of education is more closely aligned with that of John Dewey. Although some people argue that he held a neutral view, 
There is no neutral view when you think about it. I believe he was purposeful in placing the focus of education on students and their development. I think it takes faith in students to believe that they'll make good decisions when you've done your best to get them to that point. Um, regardless of your philosophy though, we encourage you to begin thinking of ways you can prepare students to be informed, capable citizens who actively exercise their right to be a contributing member of society. If you're not a teacher, perhaps you can give some of your time to help students in some way like mentoring or volunteering or even being involved as a parent with your children at home. Um, any way that you can make a difference is awesome. I like that a lot and I was thinking about my viewpoint and it's like, you're right, I, I agree that education there, like if there's no neutrality in education. So it's kind of like, if we're saying that Dewey is a neutral um, like viewpoint, then it's you kind of, it's kind of impossible to have that neutral viewpoint. And so I will say that I kind of skew more liberal um, when it comes to my like philosophy of education. Like when I think about my math classroom and like what I want it to be, I want kids to feel like they're able to like do more with math versus like feel limited by it. And it just opens up so much like opportunity for kids when they like interact with media. Like if, if they're looking at the news and they see a graph about like the coronavirus cases, if they're, if they have like really great math literacy, they'd be able to like digest the graph and like critique it without having any trouble and then like decide from themselves what they want to do with that information. Um, I think that's where I am with it. Cause I wouldn't feel comfortable telling kids to be like, you need to do this. Like you need to participate in society in this only this way. Cause that's kind of like brainwashing. Yeah. Or you have to feel this way about this topic. Yeah. Cause then that's like, it's almost like authoritarian and like, we might as well be North Korea for telling people how to feel and how to react to certain things. Yeah, that's one thing I appreciate about this class too, is that um, I feel I feel welcome personally, and I think other people do too, um, that even if my viewpoint isn't exactly like someone else's, it's okay. We each have our voice and it's important to, to share our perspective. Yeah, definitely. So um, that concludes act one. So after this, we'll be back after the break to discuss why two math teachers like ourselves are in this class and what we're going to take out of it. Welcome back to this week's transformative talk. I'm Amy. And Austin. We're your hosts. Now that we've talked about the different viewpoints of education, we're gonna explore our personal connection to what we've learned in this social studies class. What in the world are two math teachers going to learn in a course about social studies? Um, what were your first impressions of the class? Well, I, I had already recently had a class with Dr. Haddad in the spring, and I was pleasantly surprised, although I was a little bit fearful in the beginning, I was pleasantly surprised to learn about myself even, as well as the topics that we studied. Um, I have an idea of the kind of critical work that we would do in this course, so I knew ahead of time what it, what that might look like. Um, 
but also I just thought this would be a, a great opportunity to learn more about social studies, especially given the context in which we currently live and teach in the Trump era. Yeah, um, I'm super excited for this course. And honestly, I did not realize it was a social studies course until the first day. Um, I just saw Dr. Herdad's name on the, the like class list and I was like, okay, I'll register. I've heard he's a good professor. Um, but I'm super excited to learn about how teachers can effectively teach in like a super divisive time that we're living in right now. And because mm -hmm. like kids, kids soak up so much and they're very, they're very observant to what's going on. So they're definitely asking teachers questions about things like things like that, even if we don't think that they're listening or anything like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, what are some tangible takeaways that you've learned so far? Well, well, for one, we went over authentic intellectual work, which I'll call AIW. And to, to give you a little bit of a background for that so that you understand what I'm taking away from that, I'm just going to give you a description of that based on our text. Um, King, Newman, and Carmichael describe authentic intellectual work as this. The distinctive character characteristics of authentic intellectual work can be summarized as construction of knowledge, through the use of disciplined inquiry to produce discourse products or performances that have value beyond school. So personally, my takeaway from this description of AIW is the importance of connecting learning to what's going on outside of our classroom as well, because what's going on inside is important too, right? But connecting it to, okay, now how do we live this out? What can we use this for when we're not in the classroom? So for example, one of my classmates, Aaron Patino, he shared how his students were challenged to identify one aspect of society that is conflict-ridden and also to suggest a solution for it. So it turns out that one of the groups in particular, they chose human trafficking and suggested um, that it's a modern day slave trade and the connections between slavery and underage sex workers were absolutely eye-opening for everybody. So it's awesome that his group was brave enough to, to tackle that topic and that it was eye-opening for the whole class, including Aaron himself, the teacher, um, so that they can begin to think about ways that they should have some influence on people around them so that they can come against these challenges and, and, and issues. But um, also, this is the kind of thing that I want to focus on in my math classes. I love teaching math. I enjoy math. And I'm sure some of my students, not all, enjoy math just for math itself, but I want to bring in some of those issues that are tough to tackle outside of the classroom. Um, I want to be intentional about connecting some of our concepts to social issues and give students an opportunity to voice their perspective and share some possible solutions because that's what I appreciate about Dr. Haddad's classes. I've been able to, to um, raise my voice as well and kind of fine tune my perspective and be more knowledgeable about what's going on. I, the, when I read about authentic intellectual work, it really, like, it was a really cool way to kind of, like, like, I'm thinking about it, like, as a unit wrap-up, you know, like, okay, let's take everything that we've learned in this unit and then do some type of, like, culminating task or, or project with it, and then, like, the student bringing whatever else that they know about what's going on into it, too, because I think a lot of times in... I think like for me personally, 
I think kids believe that they don't know a lot of, they know less math than they think they know, or they mm-hmm. just don't see it as like a, like they see math class as like a separate thing outside of like real life. Cause they're all, I don't know, you get this, but they're all, so they're like, when am I going to use algebra in real life? And I'm like, oh yeah, all the time you're always be an algebra teacher, I guess, I don't know. But if we can like get kids to think about that question and then like answer for themselves in some sort of like task and like them to find their own like interest and see how it relates to some other subject like math or social studies, then it would like they might be more interested and engaged in it. Yeah, and see the importance of it, huh? Yeah, because we don't, I like, back to what we were saying earlier about, like, telling kids what to believe, like, when we say, like, XYZ thing is important, we're kind of, like, telling them what to believe versus them figuring out, figuring that out on their own. True. Yeah. Yeah. I have noticed that some students will come back and say, oh, my gosh, we use this in, um, in physics uh, or chemistry or whatever. Now, how do you do that again? So they see the importance because it's going to show up again. Yeah, it's definitely going to show up again. Um, this, what was interesting also about some of our readings was that it really opened my eyes to a new perspective on Bloom's taxonomy. So I'll share a bit um, of kind of like the key points of the reading. So Roland Case, he explained that Bloom's taxonomy has become very popular as a theory of teaching, um, as opposed to what it was really designed for, which is a theory of assess- assessment. So unfortunately, this has led to some wise, widespread errors in our teaching practices. Um, and at the end of the chapter we read, there are three principles <clears throat> that he shared to effectively promote thinking. So one was adjust the difficulty of a task Um, so that a student engages regularly in higher order learning activities. So if it's a creation task or a synthesis task, to make it, it's a scaffold for kids. You don't have to go down like the pyramid of blooms. You just, you can stay at that point and um, adjust the difficulty from there. Mm -hmm. The second thing was appreciate that understanding of subject matter is not a lower order task that could be transmitted. Um, It requires that students can think critically with and about the ideas and understand that inviting students to offer reasoned judgments is a more fruitful way of framing learning tasks than is the use of verbs clustered around um, levels of thinking that are removed from evaluative judgments. So I think for myself, I always thought like, oh, if a student doesn't like have a base level understanding of a certain concept, then there's no way that they can get to the high, the, like the higher order areas of blooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, whenever I'm getting observed, whenever I'm getting observed or I'm like writing a lesson, I just like, I'm like, okay, I know what verb, what like sentence starter I need to use for my question that I have to script so that it's like, it gets me points for being high level blooms on the rubric. And um, it made, like I now I know that those two things are not entirely true. Um, yeah. And kids like kids of all like ability levels can access a higher order task just through like effective scaffolding and not necessarily having to like take away the rigor from it. Right. Uh, yeah. What have you? Was there anything that new that you learned about blooms? 
Uh, some of those same things that you mentioned, um, I didn't realize that it was actually a, a theory of assessment. I, I'm not sure that I ever heard that before. Um, if I did, I don't remember. Um, also, I don't currently refer to blooms a whole lot in my classroom um, when putting our lesson plans together. It's just not something that we do um, for whatever reason. But I do appreciate the um, the explanation that one of our classmates gave. And so I thought her experience was really awesome. We could learn a little bit from this. So Samantha Rodriguez says that blooms became popular my first year of teaching. We had posters, stamps, sentence stems, books, and all sorts of other unnecessary merchandise that companies marker or um, marker to low performing urban schools. I had always been taught to use blooms as a way to create my lessons rather than a form of assessment. So I guess you could say my understanding of it prior to this chapter has always been a little misguided. One of the biggest mistakes I'm guilty of is using the verbs in the work that I give my students without teaching them how to actually do what the verb is asking. I think that this is the biggest thing that I will change about my teaching. I realize that I need to explicitly teach what it means to synthesize, compare, describe, etc. Yeah, so I, I appreciate Samantha sharing that with us. Um, do, you do you recommend, Austin, that um, other math teachers or any other teachers in general should take this course? Of course. Um, we do learn a lot from collaborating with other teachers who teach our same content. And we can also see education and teaching from a different perspective if we learn from like through the lens of another content. And that really helps us add like new fresh, and idea new, fresh ideas to our classroom. Um, before I, so I, like I started teaching and then I started instructional coaching with Teach for America. And as I started seeing like tons of different, like observing different grade levels and contents, when I went back to the classroom afterward, I was able to take a lot of different ideas from their teaching that I definitely would not have gotten through like any sort of math professional development or observing other math teachers. Yeah, I like that, that you said it brings some fresh ideas to your classroom. And, and I think as teachers, we need to, you know, intentionally become more well-rounded because when we explore other subject areas, it makes our, the experience for our students richer, um, as well as for us. I don't think I ever considered discussing current events in my math class before in the past, but I certainly will be after taking this class. Me too. It was, it's something that I've always wanted to do um, since I studied political science and undergrad. Um, so now I just have like more of a like encouragement to do that now. Yeah. If you really enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about this topic, I encourage you to research freedom schools. So Freedom schools were started during the civil rights movement as a free alternative to public education for African-American students. And I bring this up because this was something that um, a, a, one of my friends on Instagram put on her story. And so it just reminded, like I made a connection between like that, these schools and um, what we're learning about in class right now. So the purpose of these schools was to teach students to be an active agent of change in their community and for African-American students to learn like more about their own history and like accurate rep representations of it. And so I would think that like George Counts and, and possibly Dewey too would 
have been like a very strong like proponent and cheerleader for these schools because it's like very well entrenched in their philosophy. So while these schools don't exist in their like the same iteration as they do today as they did in the civil rights movement in the 60s, there are lots of different programs that are similar to freedom schools and they have started growing traction. The one that I'm familiar with is the Sunflower County Freedom Project in the Mississippi Delta, which is um, where the freedom rides were like, like that, that part of the civil rights movement was like really blew up and got big. And so I encourage y'all to check them out so you can research it and just kind of like see like an example of what, what could be done and replicated. And their website is sunflowerfreedom.org and sunflower like the flower. Wow, thanks for sharing that, Austin. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, guys, that is all for this episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you discovered our show. That's all for now, but I'll see you in the next episode of Transformative Talk. Bye. Bye, everyone. Sweet. Okay, I'm going to stop recording.